All right, so shall we chat about science then? Sure. Um, we should have planned this. We, we should have planned this out instead of screwing around. Story, no, that's all right. I mean, story I, of my life. Uh, <clears throat> one of the things, uh, you know, that I hear in podcasts all the time is like, oh, we'll cut this out later. And of course, you know, I hear it in the podcast and you're like, oh, well, clearly they didn't. Uh, and I can never tell if it's a running joke that they'll cut it out or if they actually just got lazy and didn't cut it out. But uh, well, I guess we can find out now whether or not we're going to do it that way. Anyway, so shall we cast some pod? Sure. I'm also figuring, so, uh, well, the analogy in my head I was using for this, you know how the first few episodes of something are always kind of crappy and like not like the final versions, right? Yes. Uh, like, well, I don't, have you ever seen like the old Garfield, uh, like the verse, first few strips of Garfield where Garfield looked like a big sack of potatoes with eyes stuck onto it and, you know, was wholly unappealing as a character? Uh, I figured this would be like our episode of that. <laughs> and where John has like the weird roommate with the, the mustache that looks like it's made of flesh and he kind of looks like a child molester. So I figured this would be like that episode for us. And then is that you know. a real <laughs> thing or are we really, are you taking some serious drugs? No, 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 no. Oh, you, so if you look up, um, the old Garfield strip, his name was Lyman, L Y M A N, uh, or look up like Garfield Lyman. Oh my God. I think I'm remembering this right. This you are. Kind of terrifying it it looks kind of like a. It's like John from the from the neck down and Frankenstein above that. Yeah, and if you look at the first, or if you Google like Google image search like first, first Garfield strip or something like that, I imagine it will work. Like Garfield is horrifying looking and not at all. Yeah, unlovable. I'm, I'm looking at one of the first ones, which has been dubbed, I guess, into Mandarin. <laughs> Uh, I'm not sure. I'm pretty sure the first Garfield strip was not actually in Mandarin. <laughs> That's the one where John eats Garfield in the strip, right? Actually, you laugh, but uh, yes, yes, it is. Here, I'll, I'll send it uh, to you. Is it? I saw somewhere. I can't remember where it was. I think there was a strip where it was implied that Odie was eaten by John at some point, but. Uh, um. So anyway, welcome to our podcast, Internet Strangers. All right, should we try this for the seventeenth uh, time? <laughs> but no, no, no. I mean, I think there's good stuff in here that we can probably use. But anyway, this is, I think, our um, you know, our weird uh, roommate with the mustache that looks like skin, you know, child molester episode of uh, of the podcast, and then it'll probably take final form later. I would assume. I hope so. So, shall we introduce ourselves? Yeah. Uh, you, go ahead. You want to start? Well, no, I was going to say you can start because I've been chatting more. So I'm Matt Kraus. Uh I don't know what to say here. Uh, I don't know. We're both neuroscientists. Uh, we're starting a podcast about science to share our witticisms with the world. So far, we've successfully talked for 90 minutes without actually getting to any science but uh it's true and 11 minutes that are actually recorded or no no no, no. uh 20 minutes that are actually recorded but uh, we, we've occasionally dipped into science so far it happens from time to time yeah uh so i guess we could i mean we could sort of say that you know so we know each other from grad school which we both semi-recently completed uh phd wise uh not not like fake grad school like you know well i won't name any names but uh <laughs> zing we both graduated from the University of Phoenix together. Um, it's true. We met in a chat room. 
<laughs> Exchange cat uh, images. Then, you know, both of us found out that we were actually dudes, and here we are. We're actually both FBI agents. Yes. Uh, it was awkward. Uh, yeah, so, uh, well, I don't know how much of our real identities we want to give away, but we, we both went to a relatively prestigious, I suppose. Somehow we got into a, a fairly decent grad school, despite our uh, slackerdom. Yes, and, uh, thank you, clerical oversight that allowed us in. <laughs> yes. I seem to have uh, swapped some decimal points in that GPA calculation, but uh, here we go. Um, yeah, so but now we're, well, you're a postdoc and I'm a, an assistant professor, and we are both uh, strangers in strange lands, actually living in different uh, hemispheres, but uh, podcasting away nonetheless, huh? Yeah, I think actually, are you still um, directly across the earth from me? Also, um, I mean, because I'm on the equator, right? So. Um, if you look at the, if you go to, do we already talk about Antipode? I think it's called antipodemap.com. Yes, we did. Or we did, but I thought you were surprisingly close to. Well, I don't know if you know, but Canada is not actually on the uh, equator. Really? Uh, you would never know from our warm, <laughs> sunny weather. No, but um, so if you, uh, no, um, uh, what is it called? Antipode. Antipode. Map. Oh, I went is to. Is this antipode.com? I went to freemaptools.com. Oh, you're right. Oh, there used to be one that was called like antipodemap.com or something, but maybe it got uh, maybe it got taken off because yeah, I see the free map tools. Anyway, if you put in my um, my location, you come out somewhere in Colombia. Yeah, something like that. But if you go up to um, if you sort of just go up in latitude, you can do this with Google. Well, I guess it uses Google Maps, right? You can do this in Google Maps too, just by finding your latitude and longitude and then adding you know 180 degrees to your longitude, I guess. Um, but if you, if you go up until like you hit the U S I'm 180 degrees around the world from like Durham, North Carolina. So, um, that's kind of crazy. Yeah. So uh, if you go 180 degrees around the world from where like my parents live in North Carolina, uh, you would end up in like the Indian ocean, but like due South of me basically. And yeah, so if you go, Hmm. looks like if you go due North from Durham, uh, you're somewhere between Toronto and Ottawa, but yeah, still pretty much 180 degrees longitude around the world from each other. Ironically, if I dig a giant hole, I will end up in Antarctica, where it's also freezing. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. I didn't really so I didn't realize you were actually Montreal is that far. Well, I guess I've given away your location now, ladies. Um, are you actually? Well, no, I end up in the the Antarctic Ocean. I'm south of Australia. I see. Yeah, so you're like right off the southwest tip of Australia. So actually, that's not too far because if let's see, if I pinpoint uh, myself on this, oh, this this one actually works a fair bit better because you can see them both in like stereo than the other Antipode map site. Uh, if I zoom in on Kuala Lumpur, I mean, I did this once, like down to like the actual location of my house, but I guess it doesn't matter. Well, it only matters insofar as it's right in the Ecuador and Peru border, I guess. But uh, yeah, so. I'm right directly across the world from like the southeastish portion of Ecuador. Clearly, the, um, the only reason you have not dug a giant tunnel through the Earth is you don't know which visa to get once you arrive. <laughs> yes, actually. Well, you know that uh, this is actually science related. I would really love. I mean, this would be impractical to do, but I would love somebody to do the actual experiment where you cut, you know, you bore a hole directly through the Earth and jump in at one side, and you know, in theory except for air resistance, you would pop out exactly on the other side, right? Yes, and do you know that the transit time? This is amazing, and I'm not sure if it's true. 
No, what is it? 42 minutes. Really? I, I, I've heard that, and it's so good that I have not bothered trying to figure it out myself <laughs> or look, verify it in any way, but yes. <laughs> that's, that's the best kind of science I find. Um, so has anybody, have you ever done the calculation? I'm sure this is answered somewhere on the internet. Have you ever seen anyone do the, the calculation as to like how close you get if you factor in like air resistance and so forth? No. Uh, I mean, uh, I, we can look that up. I assume you would die a flaming death at some point, like fairly well, rapidly. Yeah, I mean, you have a, you have a certain um, liquid hot magma uh, factor to overcome, I suppose. Well, I think even if you, you know, even before you get to the molten core of the earth it gets pretty friggin hot um yeah well i mean and even if you this is i mean I, I suspect that this is one of those spherical cow situations where there are so many hypotheticals and things we're going to have to go like gloss over that it's not really a useful question anymore but like if you had like a smooth tunnel all the way through the earth um you know like a, you know a tunnel holding back yeah. the magma okay um but that would still heat the air significantly I'm just trying to think like how that would impact things like you know if you did so if you did have air flowing in from the atmosphere here you know let's say you say you built like a just dug like a six foot wide tunnel just enough for like a human being to comfortably like jump through are you a six foot wide human being <laughs> well I, well you gotta have some room for like your arms to stretch out a bit and stuff but you know yeah, okay um, Okay, but in other words, like not a mile wide, like, you know, a few feet wide, uh, and you're sort of encased it in aluminum or, or, you know, some kind of metal or something to hold back the liquid hot magma, some kind of reinforced uh, uh, metal or something. But then you obviously still have like, you'd have airflow in then from the atmosphere that would permeate the core, but that air would be very hot. Well, wouldn't that air be going the other way? Wouldn't it be going out from the hot towards the cold? Well, I mean, but, well, I mean, I guess not. I'm just saying that when you dug the hole in the first place, air from the atmosphere would go into the hole. Oh, yeah, for sure. As it does. Then you would have some kind of equilibrium state. But Because there's no air in the middle of the Earth at the moment because it's filled with dirt and magma. <laughs> but <laughs> I'm not sure how much you know about geology. <laughs> Tell me more, Professor uh, Johnson. <laughs> oh, I will. Um, but anyway, yeah. so I just wonder what that would do if you had, like... I mean, I'm actually not entirely sure what the, the heat is at the Earth's center. I'm sure we could look it up very easily. But, you know, uh, then you'd have some sort of impractically hot air, which would... Yeah, I guess it would make the air very thin, right? Because it would all be pushing to get out. Yeah, uh, I actually wonder center. if you would... So actually, so actually, maybe you wouldn't have much of an atmosphere at the center. So according to uh, phys.org, which is reasonably reputable... Uh, yep. The very center, it is believed that temperatures exceed 11,000 degrees Fahrenheit, hotter than the surface of the sun. Um, that's quite hot. That is hot. Um, and apparently there's all sorts of reasons it's hot. Uh, there's some heat from crushing. There's some heat from it just being hot, like leftover from when the planet condensed. And uh, the vast majority of the heat is apparently, actually I didn't know this, is from radioactive decay. So you've got radioactive, oh, really? uh, yeah, there's all sorts of uranium, potassium, and thorium. So like, I guess the center of the Earth would be pretty highly radioactive if you were to fly through it on your way to, uh, well, if I were to fly through it on my way to Ecuador or whatever. Yeah, so apparently you're going to die from like three or four different kinds of burning to death, plus okay, cancer. Okay, so, 
So burning to death plus cancer plus uh, all kinds of other things. But um, shoot, I'm trying. I'm a little quieter now because I'm looking for the joke I made the other day uh, on the internet. Well, the basic thrust of the joke was, uh, oh yes, here it is. Of course, at temperatures above ten to the sixth Kelvin, jumping jack flash is a plasma, plasma, plasma. <laughs> So actually, that would work pretty well because you'd be jumping jack, you know, through the center of the Earth, flash. Uh, Anyway, and you probably would become a plasma. All right. Well, so that was a digression, but it was about science. Yeah, that that was actually. I think we should run run with this. Um, All right. Cool. So anyway, um, what's our plan here? So our plan is to do a podcast of some sort, uh, talk about some topical. Issues in science, I suppose, and uh, not just neuroscience that we do, but other science because we're—I would say we are fairly well read. I think we are Renaissance men in the. I yes, both in the original meeting and our level of scientific expertise. I was going to say we are Renaissance men, so we still believe that uh, the planets move in circular orbits, right, around the sun. Yeah, so the Earth doesn't really have a core, being a flat sheet like a pizza. Right. <laughs> Few people know that Galileo was actually uh, an early pizza artist in uh, in Italy. Uh, <laughs> he would drop pepperonis off the Leaning Tower of Pizza. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> anyway, and uh, yes, that's why the Catholic Church didn't they didn't go for that. Yeah, he dropped the meat on a Friday, which is just absolutely <laughs> unacceptable. Uh, yeah, that's too bad. Uh, Had he dropped fish? I feel like there's a there's a wine and crackers joke that's taking it one one too far here, but uh, maybe we'll just leave it leave it at that. You'll have to tune in in a future episode for that one. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so yeah, so we'll talk about a couple of current science topics, I suppose, uh, and and maybe some general discussion, which you've already seen a little bit of, I suppose. Um, so, do we want to? Do we have a news item or two that we wanted to talk about? Uh, you wanted to go with. Uh... The anti-gravity, I think. Yeah, uh, I think that's... Well, we were already kind of on a gravity kick, I suppose. So, Well, but we did. We we weren't sure, like... Now we have to read the article closer, right? Because... Uh, well, it feels well, like we're in grad school all over again. There's the anti-gravity and the dark matter particle article. The particle article. Yes. Um, the article particles. Wait, the particle articles. Um well, so there's the one, the the first direct measurement of gravity's effect on antimatter that we could not actually discern what that was. Um, so I'm not sure. Anti-hydrogen and free fall. Hmm. Did you find this article on signews.com? There might be a better, actually a better link. I'm reading the um, Wikipedia article. <laughs> I'm going to look up uh, anti-gravity, anti-hydrogen... Uh, anti-hydrogen because I'm not sure that that one source about the anti-hydrogen is uh, oh here's is antimatter anti-gravity from UC Berkeley that might be better who's the who's the author uh, you mean the like scientific lead author yeah um, well if it's like most physics articles there's like 7,000 people uh, you know like everyone who's ever been a janitor at CERN is probably listed but um Oh no! It's people. Uh, it's actually four UC Berkeley physicists. Um, this is actually the Berkeley press release here. So Joel Fahans. I believe that's Spanish for the Fahans. <laughs> uh, F A J A N S. 
F-A-J-A-N-S. Uh, UC Berkeley professor of physics. So he looks quite physics professory. Oh really? Uh, He's got kind of a fro and a beard in his earlier pictures. Oh uh, yeah. Yeah. He looks a little like Steve Wozniak-ish, kind of. He definitely looks like a man who would know about gravity. Yes. Uh, I aspire to look like that someday. <laughs> Just keep growing out the beard and having stress. <laughs> you you laugh, but I don't think I had ever seen a white hair on my head until I until like the day I started writing my thesis. Oh yeah, I mean I um, I mean I'm a couple years older than you, but like the gray hair has multiplied vastly since uh, since starting the the old faculty job here, um, which is a little disconcerting. Um, is it this nonlinear dynamics of anti-hydrogen magnostatic traps? Oh, you're actually looking at an actual publication, huh? Of course, you gotta go. Gotta go for the guts here. Um, oh God, it's a physics paper where there are gratuitous equations. Yeah. Um, conclusion. You, just, you said what did you call it? It's nonlinear. Here, I'll give you the title. You can get it from uh, no. Archimedes. I've got a description and first application of a new technique to measure the gravitational mass of antihydrogen. Nope. Uh, it's March thirteenth, two thousand thirteen. It's nonlinear dynamics of antihydrogen magnetostatic traps. Oh yeah, implications for gravitational measures. The influence of gravity on antihydrogen dynamics and magnetic traps is studied. The advantages and disadvantages yeah. of various techniques for measuring the ratio of gravitational mass to the inertial mass of antihydrogen are discussed. Let's back this up a second. What is anti-hydrogen? Well, is it hydrogen uh, made of anti-atoms or anti-particles? Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, anti-hydrogen would just be antimatter versions of hydrogen, which I mean, um, I mean, hydrogen is just a proton, right? So yeah, so I guess um, it's just with an electron. So it would be an anti-proton with an anti-electron, I suppose. Uh, that's um, positron, right? Yeah, positron. Yes, an E plus in uh, physics notation. I didn't know you could actually make things like this. Uh, who, well, I mean, that segues into, uh, apparently you can also use tiny little tweezers to make movies with atoms, but... Uh, yes, oh god, we should focus at some point. <laughs> focus, bah. Uh, focuses for microscopes. Uh, so... Okay, there's no way I'm going to be able to read this paper while well, talking. <laughs> this, you know, it's only the press, press release says the same thing as the crappy uh, scinews.com article. It's like... What a coincidence! Yes, well... Though far from definitive, the UC Berkeley experiment points the way towards a definitive answer to the fundamental question of whether matter falls up or down, but yet they still don't say what the answer is. Dude, that, is there a spoiler alert at the bottom, maybe? <laughs> I don't know. Apparently, they're, yeah, they're bringing back Lost to, uh, to show this on a future episode. Okay, so, um, so I guess my surprise that this is somewhat okay. So they've only been able to make anti-hydrogen for about a year. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, it's a certain um, I guess, thing. I mean, uh, so how do you make antihydrogen? I mean, do you exactly uh, like you said? So you take you make a, an antiproton and a positron, and then you smash them together. Well, I mean, I guess I guess it's you know I've actually you know I've read a fair bit of um, I really like. Have you ever read Leon Lederman's book, The God Particle? It's it's old now because it talks. It has like you know uh, it speaks wistfully of the day when the superconducting super collider will be finished in Texas. Um, sadly. <sighs> yes. Let's, let's pour one out for our fallen homie. So what, that was what, like 20 years ago, 25 years ago. Um, I think the book was written in like 1992 and the project was canceled like two or three years. Yeah. Later. The project was canceled in 93, I think. Yeah. So, um, 
But it's a, it was a really good book of, you know, like sort of the history of particle physics, actually going back to, you know, when particles meant like, you know, balls dropped off the Leaning Tower of Pisa, uh, or so it is claimed. Um, but, um, I mean, I assume what, what it actually is, is, I mean, you have basically, uh, you, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm assuming what you have is you have like uh, particle accelerators that sort of, you know, start off by colliding things that we have in nature, like protons and stuff, and then you catch and save magnetically or however uh, the outputs from those collisions, right? And then if you need like antiparticles that don't normally exist in nature, then you have like a little cache of antiparticles you can use for stuff. Is that is that how you would do it, basically? I think so, but the trick is that you have to keep the anti whatever's, um, the trick is keeping those around, right? So if you have an antiparticle and a regular particle and they collide, then right. they annihilate each other and you get a bunch of energy. And then you right, have no but you particles. can do that. You can do that pretty easily, right? Because they would have opposite charges. Uh, so that should be pretty easy. Well, easy. <laughs> easy for them. Well, I think, yeah, I mean, in theory, easy. But it looks like a lot of this guy's work is, is de like developing new ways to actually grab the antimatter. Exactly, like, uh, trap them. I mean, that's what it, because, you know, protons, uh, proton protons are very stable, right? I mean, there's that whole debate as to whether a proton will ever decay. Uh, but I don't know how, I, I would assume that means an antiproton would also be stable if it was created. Uh, but of course, I don't know, like, in a collision, how likely you are to produce like uh, how likely a particle collision is to produce like an actual full-formed proton rather than like, I mean, I know you get a lot of quarks and anti-quarks, but I don't know how likely those are to like coalesce into a, an, a full anti-proton. Uh, got me. Yeah, it looks like it's pretty tricky. So they have a paper from uh, June of 2011 yeah. where they successfully held on to anti-hydrogen for a thousand seconds, which is what, like a little more than 15 minutes. Uh, yeah, something like that. Yeah, so that's, that must be pretty hard if that gets you a nature paper. Okay. Okay, well, so, so that tells us something about the state of the art, I guess, but, um... Oh, there's a diagram of how they do it. Um... Oh, it's it, finally at the end of the article. Anti-hydrogen anti did not behave weirdly. Ooh, the, 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 uh, mechanism has the excitingly named annihilation detector, an octopole, and mm. a mirror. <laughs> Oh, um, eh, okay. Oh, it's a mirror coil. I don't even know what that means. I don't know what that means either. But I kind of want to buy an annihilation detector. So this isn't, well, it sounds like the um, confidence intervals are pretty large, pretty large here still. So it says anti-hydrogen did not behave weirdly. So they calculated that it cannot be more than 110 times heavier than hydrogen. Uh, and if it's anti-gravity, and they can't rule that out yet. It doesn't accelerate upward with more than 65 Gs. So it sounds like the, you know, the confidence intervals... Wait, so I found the interval. It is... <laughs> they can rule out ratios above um, 75 and below minus 65. Okay, that's that's almost what it says here. Uh, I don't know why, where they got 100. Oh, so 110 is if you include worst-case systematic effects. Oh, Okay. So I think the physicists do a lot of this, where they try to model like how their instruments could be screwed up, and then they right. bolt that onto their like experimental error. Right, but that, I mean, so if you take so if you take what is it negative sixty five and seventy five, that means what they actually measured was like. Well, I guess actually, it should be what they should measure is one. 
right? Well, the, plus one. the next sentence is, obviously, our limits are far from the F equals one regime, where one could test for small deviations from the weak equivalence principle. Yeah. Okay, so this is really like a proof of concept that it could be measured more precisely. Right, so they need to get the... It says, it goes on, it says if we could get the atoms colder, maybe with lasers, um, they want to get them to below 30 millikelvin, which is absolutely freezing. Yeah. And then uh, stronger magnetic fields, they could uh, measure gravity around the, uh, around one. So a a ratio is around one. So uh, So stay tuned. Give them lots of money and stay tuned, yeah. Okay. Uh, All right, so... That was kind of technical, uh, but I, well, that could be good, I guess, for podcastery. Um, it is kind of funny to look at the stats, because they're like crazy physics stats, and then all of a sudden it's just a chaos test. <laughs> yeah, which is a, a what is it, a uh, Kolmogorov-Smirnov test, that, right? Something that's like why that. I never say its full name, because I'm not entirely yes. sure how to pronounce it. Then you have to go da, da. at the end. The test is to uh, find the maximum. This is a good test. It, it is, is not a, a good much test. better it's than the capitalist test that you all use. Or not nicked good. Do you think? Do you think non-parametric tests are just the communist version of parametric tests? Mm, in Soviet Russia, statistics tests <laughs> in you. Soviet Russia. Yes, assumptions make you. Uh, <laughs> I will be saving that for lab meeting. <laughs> uh, all right. So a little stats humor there. Um, okay. So basically, so antimatter may or may not obey the law of gravity or the law of anti-gravity, so stay tuned. Um, but that seems, so uh, I wish I could find this this thing that I was looking up the other day because this got into, well, I mean, because this, this plays into, this seems relatively important, I would think, to this other thing about dark, uh, dark matter, right, and dark energy and so forth, uh, and the possible detection of a dark matter particle, right? Because, well, I don't know. I, I guess it really depends, right? Because, I mean, we have this problem with with dark matter, where like gravitationally, it appears that there's much more matter in the universe that we can than we can observe, right? But I guess if antimatter, what little there is in the universe, or is thought to be in the universe, actually behaved with anti gravity, that would make the problem worse, not better, right? Well, it depends on the ratio, right? So you could imagine that there's way more dark matter, and it all behaves the same, or maybe the dark matter. And the anti-gravity. Oh no, no is... but like I was, I was talking about like antimatter and anti-gravity, right? So, if you know whatever antimatter there was in the universe, if it had anti-gravity, that would really just make the dark matter problem worse than we think it is, right? Well, it depends on the ratio, right? If it's because it'd be working against the regular matter gravity. Yep. If if it's yeah, yeah, I think so. But I mean, that that said, the ratio of actual antimatter in the universe is thought to be pretty small, right? So. Uh, I thought it was close to one to one, but I have. What? No, 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 that's one of the big. That's one of oh, the no, big sorry. questions, right? Yeah, but I thought is. Wait, how do we know this? From from the acceleration of stars and stuff, right? They're moving too fast for all the matter that we can see. Is that how it goes? Uh. Wait, ignore me. I'm talking about. I'm confusing dark matter and antimatter. Wait, are we talking about dark matter? or Are we talking about matter antimatter asymmetry? Uh, yeah, I was mixing those two up in my head. Ignore everything I just said. Oh, that's all right. We can we can cut this all out. Uh, well, clearly we're not physicists anyway, but we maybe what we say might you know probe someone to want to learn about physics. I don't know, um, or just make stupid jokes about physics. Uh, but I mean, yeah. So it it only kind of relates. But I guess it, it is true that like you know there's not thought to be that much antimatter in the universe anyway. So 
I guess it doesn't isn't thought to significantly affect the other problem, which we talked about, which was the which was the dark matter, the possible discovery of a dark matter particle, uh, which is kind of interesting. Although uh, it's only at the three sigma level, so you know, only you know, like ten times more uh, scientifically rigorous than most of our experiments. No, three sigma is only. Uh, well, it's only one sigma more, but it's zero point zero one, right? Zero point zero zero one. It would be zero point. It would, yeah, ninety nine point eight percent chance. So, yeah, I don't know if that's one tailed or two tailed. I'd have to think. I'd have to remind myself. Um, but yeah, like so, you know, if we normally take a five percent, so that would be what? Well, twenty five times more confident than we are. Yeah. Well, to be uh, fair, if you know, I could collide thousands of monkeys at high speed. I could, <laughs> and it would produce the works of Shakespeare. That's the dream. That's the dream. <laughs> um, yeah. So, um, well, I guess I guess the, we don't probably want to get into the, the the wimp signal, the weakly interacting massive particle question, too much. Um, um, but I will have to, um, you know, I will have to maybe at some point later I'll look up this other theory about how, like, if if you tweak the laws of physics a little bit over time, you can like get rid of a lot of these annoying. Um, Knowing things like why you know why there isn't the same amount of matter and antimatter in the universe, and because I'm not sure how how deeply those are connected, you know, in the standard model, right? Like the the matter antimatter balance and the uh, the dark matter phenomenon. Yeah, no, I have no idea. Okay. Anyway, all right. Well, as an aside, I have standard model envy. How so? Don't you wish we had like? Don't you wish we had like a like a standard model of the brain that we could test things against? Yeah, I mean, well, yeah. I mean, they have the whole universe, and they can you know more or less describe it with a handful of equations. I have like a two millimeter by two millimeter square of tissue, and I have no idea what it does. We're talking about your penis, right? Ooh. Well, so this is another thing that I think I remember from the God Particle, an excellent book written by a Nobel Prize winner. Um, but he, you know, he talks about like the dream being like a, uh, a model of physics that can fit on a t-shirt, you know, and at least in 1992, he said, well, basically it fits on a t-shirt if it's really big and the print's kind of small, you know? So, uh, but obviously what you'd like is like about five equations that, that, you know, or one to rule them all. Um, but yeah, I mean, well, but it's a different thing, right? Because... Obviously, the brain is a complex system, so you're not going to have any, like... But the brain is a proper subset of the universe, <laughs> you know? I mean... <laughs> uh, it's, right. But, I mean, in other words, um, you know, when you're describing the most fundamental things, it's, they're going to have the most fundamental behaviors. I mean, you're really getting into more, like, you know, network dynamics and complexity theory and things like that if you want to have, like, laws that describe the brain. But, you know, then you're, you're always talking about approximating like large scale chaotic patterns, right? Yeah, I'd be okay with that. Well, I mean, there are people trying to apply those things, but like, I, I don't know. It's always been a little bit um, unsatisfying for me, right? When you look at these people doing like the large, not naming any names, but when you talk about like the Connectome projects. And oh, so no, forth. let's name some names. Yeah, all of that is sort of, uh, well, I mean, we'll see. But, you know, they, they do papers where they're like, well, we, what we've proven is that the brain is a small world network, which basically means like, you know, 
you can get from neuron A to neuron B anywhere in the brain in like a relatively short number of connections, which I mean, we kind of already knew, right? We just said mathematically. I have actually it. seen an even worse paper where they argue that the brain is not randomly connected, which, uh, yes, you can tell by looking at it. You like the, the dendrites don't just spout off in any random direction? Yep. Um, yeah. Uh, yep. To be, I mean, cracking it's work, a, guys. Assume a spherical cow. Um, I mean, you do have to, like, I guess, show that, but then you would like to. Nah. Yes, you would like to refine your theory to the point where it vaguely approximates things we know just by looking. Uh, but, you know, I don't know. Uh, right, but all those, all those theories seem to be like, so we've, we've proven that all the stuff in the brain is connected to each other. Uh, so I don't think it's gotten much more sophisticated than that, obviously. No, although we'll uh, see with this, like, uh, billion dollars getting poured into it. Yeah, I would like to get you. Is there like a form I can fill out to get a, a piece of that, or you know, do I have to show like a driver's license? Or I think you just stop by the White House with like a. You just bring your own bag, though. They charge you a nickel if you don't have a bag. Oh, okay, that's good. You know, they've actually started doing that in uh, in the equatorial country. I uh, do they do that in Canada too? Yeah, they do it in the U.S. now too. Oh, do they do it in a lot of? I mean, it makes sense. But they what's weird is they do it only on Saturdays here. Um, this is a bit of an aside. Have I told you this before? No, that's actually kind of strange. They only charge you for a bag on Saturdays. Well, what's, I think it's, I mean, I think it's a thing like a, because Saturday is a big shopping day. Right. And B, because it's trying to like ease people in without them thinking it's completely, uh, tyrannical, you know, to only have like one day a week. But the funny thing is, uh, I think a lot of people don't understand. They don't think about the logic of it. Right. So like when I come Somewhere with my like my canvas shopping bags on Saturday, they they like have no problem with it because they're like, okay, yeah, you want to save like ten cents a bag. Uh, but when I bring them on other days of the week, they look at me funny. They're like, but it's, it's not Saturday. You don't have to, you don't have to pay any extra for a plastic bag today. I'm like, but it's still good for the earth all of the days, right? That's actually kind of surprising. Yeah, I mean, I'm exaggerating a bit, but it is true that like people they don't do it just for the sake of you know like doing it because you to not waste material. Uh, they really do do it just because of the economic incentive. And they don't seem to understand that like it might be good to do other days of the week, even without the economic incentive. Huh? It's funny because the opposite sort of works for me. Like I have spent way more than five cents of my time to walk back home to get a shopping bag. Oh yeah. Well, I, I mean, and what's funny is actually like I was very bad when I was living in the States about always, like I had canvas bags, but I would never remember to, you know, bring them with me or anything. But here, because people are so like, like there's no recycling anywhere, really. I mean, on, on the university campus, we can recycle stuff. But like at home, I have no options to recycle. So I just have to throw everything out. Uh, but like, because people are so, so sort of like willfully non-recycly, I have decided to do it just out of sheer uh, contrariness. I'm like, <laughs> all right, well, screw you guys. I'm bringing canvas bags everywhere I go. Hmm. So DC implemented this, like, I don't know, probably right after I moved out of there. Um, but it was weirdly successful. So they charge five cents a bag. And I think, I can't remember how it goes. Either four cents goes to cleaning up the Anacostia River, which was kind of a polluted yeah. mess. And one cent goes to the city the other way around. And like a couple okay. years after it went into effect, I think they were using, uh, I think, 90% fewer plastic bags. And the river That's looks like... Cool. I mean, I wouldn't go for a swim yet, but it doesn't look like a floating garbage dump like it used to. That's good. 
I mean, no, you have to keep in mind that DC is entirely, well, DC is entirely peopled by like, you know, poor urbanites and incredibly hippie, you know, liberals who just graduated from college and like to protest things. Zing! So, How? Well, it's so Take I was it on the nose this, here. <laughs> well, no, oh, no offense, former DC resident, but no, I mean, I, no, uh, but. But it is true, right? I mean, like everyone in, in D.C. is it's not hippieish in the way that like Portland is, but it's very like left leaning. Right. Um, um, but I, yeah. Well, what was so I was just looking up uh, the presidential for various reasons that are unrelated to anything. I was looking up all the presidential elections. Oh, D.C. always goes Democratic, like by like 90. Even in the cases where like the Democratic candidate, like uh, who was the one? Now I'm going to quickly run through. Marion Barry. Uh, is that where this is going? No, 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 no. Although, uh, I mean, he is a fantastic example of how people in D.C., who you would think would be very good at politics and, and figuring that out. Uh, not so much. Uh, let's see. Where is... Uh... For people who don't know the uh, backstory here, Marion Barry was the mayor. Uh, he was then arrested in an <laughs> FBI sting uh, for actually a whole bunch of things, and uh, ranging from drugs to I think there was some corruption in there, too. And there's a fairly famous video of him taken by the FBI shouting, the bitch set me up, the bitch set me up, as he <laughs> runs around in a hotel room, I think with cocaine. So yeah, he went to jail, uh, got out of jail, and then ran for city council and was reelected. And then I think he is in legal trouble again over taxes, although that may have been sorted out by now. Yeah. But yeah, so he's uh, DC's city council for life at this point, I think. <laughs> yes. Well, I mean... He still beats uh, former mayor of what, what? What was Jerry Springer the mayor of Cleveland? Ah, uh, yes. Don't pay for strippers. Or Cincinnati? With city no, checks. Cincinnati, I believe. Yeah, it was one yes. of those. Don't pay for your prostitutes with checks, kids. I think she was only a stripper. Was that true? I thought it was. Well, either way, I, uh, I met him once. He's actually a surprisingly smart man, except for that. Oh yeah, he's. A, I think he's supposed to have like a genius level IQ, if, if I recall correctly. Just not with regards to uh, payments of. Uh, Prostitutional humans. Um, okay, so if you look at the U.S. presidential elections from 1972 and 1984, so 72 was Nixon McGovern. Uh, McGovern carried, I believe, yes, one state plus the District of Columbia. He carried Massachusetts and Columbia. Of course. <laughs> uh, sorry, District of Columbia, yeah. Massachusetts and D.C., yeah. Uh, not, not the country of Columbia. Uh, and in 1984... Ronald Reagan won every state but Minnesota, which was Walter, Walter Mondale's home state, and D.C. So in the two presidential elections in recent history, we're like, first of all, I didn't realize that Richard, did you realize that Richard Nixon won in 1972 with 520 to 17 electoral votes? Yeah, I knew it was a landslide. I didn't realize it was quite that big of a landslide. I, I didn't, I knew I did not realize the Nixon one with that great of a landslide. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of insane, but uh, yet still only like 60% to 37%. But um, basically I was looking to see like what the widest percentage in the popular vote swing was in the U S in recent history. Uh, and it's, uh, that's about as wide as it gets. If you don't count, like I also didn't realize how I had forgotten how much Ross Perot screwed up, like the, the 1992 election, uh, not not screwed up, I guess, but like threw off the. Well, yeah, he was a big spoiler. Yeah, I mean, well, he. Uh, I think it's fairly clear that he took a lot of Bush votes away. Like, I think Clinton, 
is thought to be likely to have won either way, right? But, um, but I mean, Ross Perot got 18.9% of the vote in 1992, which is... Really? Way, yeah, exactly. Like, way more than I thought any third-party candidate had gotten in, in recent years. As a child, um, I just remember being annoyed because he had his, like, uh, special presentations on TV where he would stand there with a... Right. Uh, like a big pie chart he would talk about the economy right, yeah and that cut into like cartoons or three to one uh, contact or something and i hated him for it which is funny because nowadays you would you would probably be like ooh, graphs it's I true like this candidate the best <laughs> be like get, get this educational crap off the air i want to see some graphs if only russ perot had powerpoint and you know venn diagrams back in the day he may have had venn diagrams he might have had venn diagrams yeah i also remember i made a uh, a ross perot puppet <laughs> we had to make, we had to make like a political cartoon or was something. Was it named James Stockdale? No, but I I, I made an elephant with this oh, like a puppet of Ross with this Perot. like really expensive uh, paper that the art room had like one piece one sample piece of. Yeah, and I talked about how it was like some kind of satire. I was a weird child, mm-hmm. <laughs> probably a weird adult. And just by doing that, you were the greatest political cartoonist ever. It's true. It made more sense than most of them. Yes, it's a snake eating democracy. Hey, don't, um, don't tread on me, man. But, this, but the don't tread on me snake is eating his own tail. So you see... Actually, I don't know what that represents. It's an ogros or something. Which, Yes. Uh, which means... Doesn't it mean... Oh, no, no, no. That's, that's something different. What's the word for belly button in Greek? It's a great word, and it's in Ulysses. Oh, maybe it is. Omphalos. That's a different word. Anyway... Getting, there's a whole bit about the Omphalos in, uh, in Ulysses, if I remember correctly, but that's getting a bit off topic. Um, but anyway, yeah, so DC, super like liberal to the point of like voting for the Democrats, even when clearly it's a lost cause. Uh, in the case of Mondale and uh, the other guy whose name I just blanked on, uh, McGovern. Well, I mean, you don't get to vote for Congress. Might as well vote for something. Yeah, uh, I mean... But anyway, uh, why are we talking about? Oh, right, DC, plastic hippies. The other weird thing about Malaysia, uh, and then we'll go back to science, I guess, is that the word plastic now means plastic bag. Like, they'll just ask you if you want a plastic, which is bothersome to me. Um, hmm. Up here, it's sack. Everything is a sack. Oh, really? Which is confusing in the state-run liquor store, which is also called sack. Is that... State Alcohol Commission or something like that? It's, no, it's in, it's in French. It's like Société Alcoholique uh, du Alcoholique. Quebec. Uh, oh, SAQ. Yeah, yeah, it's SAQ. But I don't really the speak sack. French. So when the woman says blah, 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 sack, I'm just like, oui, sure. Is, is, is sack French for sack? No, that's not in English, too. Oh, okay. But I mean, but that's not the word in French. Uh... I don't know. The French here is a strange mixture of, like... Google Translate will tell me. Oh, no, no, no. Oh, yeah, that's right. I should know this. SAC. Like, uh, S-A-C. Just lacks the K. Huh. Yeah. So we must have gotten that from... I'm assuming we got that from when the uh, the Normans, you know, invaded England or whatever. It was It was the Normans, right? Yeah. Do you think the Normans had to pay a nickel? Or a shilling, I guess? I'm not sure. Uh... By the way, did you hear this recently? I don't know how true this is. The uh, theory that the reason that Scandinavians are so good looking is because the Vikings basically like raped and murdered all of the, well, they raped and murdered everyone, but they took the good looking women back with them. Uh, I also read that that was not true. Oh, is that not really true? But that would be an awesome story if it were. Yeah, that's too bad. 
All right. Uh, there was an actual like historical confirmation of that. Well, I also read this. I assume you saw that on Reddit, where I ever. I also read the debunking on Reddit. Um, I think that there's not like the right genomic markers for that to actually be true, but I can try to find that. Yeah, uh, we we probably don't want to get too deep into it, but I don't know. It would be kind of awesome. Uh, I mean, it, it, yes, it would explain a lot. Um, although, yeah, I, I think I'm assuming standards of beauty might have been, you know, slightly different back then anyway. Well, it's true. Like, have you been to an art museum lately? Like, you know, the, the beautiful women are all by sort of modern standards, like grossly overweight and pasty. Yeah. Um, I, I go back and forth, right? I mean, I wonder if that was just the style back then, though, that like people didn't want to paint. Well, actually, I mean, I don't know. Like, I also feel this way about, um, people in old photographs, right? Like it, it seemed like everyone was pretty ugly before about 1960. Um, would you agree with this when you see any like historical photographs? Like it's very rare that you see somebody hot in a photograph from the twenties, even if they were supposed to have been hot. Well, yeah, I mean, th- there's different cultural stuff, but I think, you know, there's a lot to be said for having enough food to eat all the time and not having polio and all that. Yeah. It, it's just hard to tell. I think like how much is, uh, you know, genetics, how much is like good grooming, how much is changing societal standards and how much is like, you know, just poor photography. And, uh, you know, people looked grim because they were, you know, they, they had lots of, you know, illnesses or whatever. Yeah. They were down to their uh, last potato and, you know, right. Exactly. Um, I mean, I guess with photography, it's a little bit different, but you know, uh, I guess I, I feel like maybe it's just cause I'm a dude and I'm more attuned to what women look like. I mean, dudes from the twenties kind of still look like dudes now to me, but yeah, I'd agree with that. Yeah. But I think, you know, maybe it is just that they like, you know, did their hair differently and it's hard to tell. I don't know. No, but I remember reading something, maybe it was for history class, where this woman was praised for her plumpness and like, you know, white skin and, you know, you'd be hard pressed to sell, sell someone on how they should plump themselves up for the purposes of beauty. That That's certainly true. Although like, you know, what you hear is, um, you know, there's the whole thing about the waist, his, weight, weight, that the waist hip ratio of 0.7, right? So even if like, cultural attitudes favor, you know, plumper or less plump women, people still prefer a waist hip ratio of of 0.7. So I think there are some universals. And I mean, I don't know, I've seen debates that go both ways on this, but I obviously don't remember them all off the top of my head. Hmm. Um, I don't know. On the other hand, if you look at like the ancient Greek statues, right? Like if you look at Venus de Milo, uh, at least body wise, she was very classically proportioned, or what I would call classically proportioned, meaning proportioned like people we think are attractive now. Oh, about those statues. Did you know that they were originally painted? I did know that. Yeah, that, that's a cool. Uh, you've seen the recreations, I assume, then of like what they looked like when they were painted, right? Well, so when I went to Austria, I, I guess someone at the uh, I don't remember the name, the, the historical art museum was the person who had like discovered this. They look awful painted they look like something oh, that, yeah, like they a, look terrible they're like garish and cartoony and it's so different from the sort of like beautiful marble statue that um, everyone sort of associates with greece and rome yeah um yes for if we're still doing this for the podcast listeners and not just our own amusement uh obviously you can't look at things uh but oh wow this is yeah this one's really terrible um if you just google like painted greek statues or something like that uh, like this is a Gizmodo article from 2010, which is I think when we saw this the first time, and like uh, like the painting of the guy 
the archer statue is the is the top thing and yeah he looks like a he looks like a piece of easter candy or something like that he does not look like these elegant white marble statues <laughs> that's a great way of describing it actually i i mean it looks like uh Sort of looks like Johnny Ive needed to get a get a hold of these statues and just like sand them all down so they only had one button, you know. I'm trying to find it at the uh, it's the Kunsthistorisches Museum in Vienna. They had they had like a whole gallery of uh, it was actually kind of cool. They they had a statue and then they had like a model of the statue where they had painted it uh, with sort of historically appropriate paints and all that. Well, that's cool. Um, and did they really look as bad as... Uh... They all looked awful. Really? I, I see. I mean, I wonder like how... What I don't know is like what the limit of the technology is. Like, you know, is it possible that they were better painters than the, the ultraviolet? Because the ultraviolet uh, would probably only reveal like the base coat, right? Um, I think... Because, I mean, you know, obviously like they could have also had layers and like, like, a, like an actual painting uh, that, you know, the base coat would be like the roughest layer, right? Yeah, but they could get like very fine details down. So I assume that that includes uh Okay. I mean the, those pr- presumably if it was painted in layers, you know, the details would be on top. Yeah, I don't know. I think we should tr- start turning we should change the title of the show to Rampant Speculation About Science We Don't Really Understand. I thought that was the title. Oh. Maybe <laughs> it is now. Well, it's the first episode, so we can decide at the end, I guess. <laughs> Well, we could uh, we could come back and revisit this with you know actual knowledge. Yeah, we could revisit some of these topics if we ever uh, if we ever you know if anyone ever actually listens, maybe we can get some experts on that know these things that can answer our questions. Uh, for right now, we can just be an index of all the random science articles we've read over the last decade. Hey, I went to an actual museum and saw this. That's true. I paid well. Nelly paid you know ten euros for me to learn about this. Well, that's good. Um, but but did they did you like you know interrogate them about the science or did you just you know assume it worked? No, they had a pretty big uh, exhibit on like how it worked and you know sort of the history of it. All right. Well, yeah. I mean, I would be very interested to hear how it works. I mean, it would just be very sad to me if you know if these statues were as garish as our recreations are because they really don't look like they'd be worth saving the way that they look in the recreations. You know. Yeah, I also wonder like when the paint disappeared and you know which body parts it disappeared off most quickly (laughs) (laughs) uh anyway (laughs) gotta rub it for good luck um you i mean you've seen that statue i assume on the yale old campus and i think they've got a similar one at harvard don't isn't there a john harvard body part you're supposed to rub for good luck to yeah yeah there's john harvard the one at georgetown we, we sat on his lap so Oh, okay. I nearly got arrested doing that my last night of school. Oh, nice. Well, the cops come by and they're like, knock it off. Come on. (laughs) Then they're like, all right, make it quick. (laughs) They really should just just put like a milk crate there and be like, all right, you want me to take the picture next? Yes. Um, Yeah, I mean, the one one at Yale of Timothy Dwight, you know, his foot is visibly, well, I guess really it's, I think it's a bronze statue, right? So it's just that the foot lacks a patina, whereas the rest of it has a patina. Um, of of maybe maybe it's a cop. I don't think it would be copper. I guess it would be bronze. Well, isn't there copper in bronze? No, that's brass. Uh, I can never remember. But anyway, one of those has copper and something else in it. 
Yeah, bronze is copper and tin. Brass, brass is uh, copper and zinc. Well, so we could probably find out. So yeah, the Timothy Dwight statue at Yale. Did people always rub him? Uh, <laughs> I assume you mean a statue? Well, I mean, I assume like they didn't unveil the statue and then everyone was like, yeah, I got to rub that thing. See, actually, he was, he was the president of Yale College from 1846 through 1871, and the students used to rub his actual foot for good luck. And uh, That's actually much weirder than rubbing the statue. <laughs> yes, I know. No, he, he, they did not actually rub Timothy, uh, Timothy, Theodore, sorry, not Timothy Dwight, Theodore Dwight Woolsey. Uh, no, no, it's Timothy Dwight, isn't it? Oh, wait, no. T- no, Timothy Dwight is someone else. Sorry, I got this mixed up. Uh, this is the statue of... So there's Timothy Dwight, but actually there's Theodore Dwight Woolsey, who is like uh, of the Woolsey things at Yale. But Timothy Dwight is the one whose foot you rub. I thought so too, but apparently... On, well, on Wikipedia, which is always right, uh, it says, yeah, the statue in... Maybe it is the statue of Woolsey that has the golden toe. I should probably know this having been at Yale for like a decade of my life. But um, Yeah, this is kind of embarrassing. Cut this part out. Anyway, it doesn't <laughs> say what the statue is actually made out of, but I think it probably is. I think bronze. I mean, you wouldn't normally make a brass statue, though, but like bronze you would. And I think bronze does get that greenish gray patina, right? Yeah, the, I think bronze. The greenish is... would come from the cop- copper oxide, I would think. I don't know. Anyway, um, but he definitely has a golden toe. Um, Wait, so seriously, did people actually rub his foot for good luck? Yeah, well, I mean, I think people still no, no, his, people... his actual foot when he was alive. Oh no, no, that was that was me making a haha. I don't know, Yale's weird. I, I would buy it. <laughs> they would wear an onion on their belt, as was the fashion at the time. You'd say, "Give me five bees for a quarter." <laughs> um, Four bees, but uh, I think it's five bees for a quarter. Um, that is, in fact, the top Google autocomplete for five Bs. <laughs> nice. Well, that makes sense. Um, but, you know, nowadays, I, of course, I don't think anyone, like, rubs statues for good luck that's a, an actual undergrad. So I don't know when it, you know, when, when it's one of those things that, like, like the Blarney Stone, when it transformed from being an actual tradition to a tradition that is only performed by dumb tourists, you know, so. Well, you didn't go rub uh, his, his foot on, like, graduation or something? No, no, that was not one of the things we do. I did, I did break a pipe. What kind of pipe? Uh, not that kind of pipe. No, you, the the old. Um, did you know this that they do this at Yale? Yeah, you're supposed to break your. I mean, the 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 legend was back when everyone smoked a pipe that you should break your pipe at graduation because now you're graduated and you know you have to live in the adult world and get a job and you don't have time to just hang around smoking your pipe all the time, which actually is, does kind of work for modern times. I don't know. I sort of. Associate pipe Different smoking pipe with contents. old men. What's that? Well, yeah. Oh, yeah, that kind of but, pipe, yes. Maybe you should be breaking. Well, I mean, but back in the day, it was a tobacco pipe. But the analogy kind of still works for today, right? Um, you know. Also sort of sounds like you're being kicked out of Hogwarts. A little bit, yeah. But um, anyway, so like you would ceremonially like break your, you know, step on your pipe. Kind of like kind of like a combination of, I don't know, like old old white British men and like a Jewish wedding. But uh <laughs> But uh, so do I have to go buy a pipe for next week? Well, wait, oh, are you you're officially graduating next week, aren't you? I'm picking up are the you, picking up the are receipt. Are you going down to? Oh yes, walk, my, or you my just... mother would not have it any other way. Oh really? Because I mean, I just well, obviously, I was in Malaysia at the time. Give, give me three ringgits for a quarter. <laughs> yes, 
Um, I don't know if they do it for grad school, but for undergrad, like the um, does the owl shop still exist? I think it does. Oh, the owl shop is more popular than ever. Oh, that's right. Now that it became the owl shop with booze, um, but uh, yeah, they would like give everyone like uh, a kind of cheap clay pipe and a and a little tobacco packet, you know, just enough to smoke once, so that you could like smoke your pipe once and then break it. I still have the pipe pieces somewhere. My uh, my original undergrad diploma smells like tobacco, actually, because like I packed them all up together. So, kind of smells like it's been in someone's uh, study with their rich leather bound books for. Uh, I was gonna say, I, I feel like a Yale diploma should smell like tobacco yeah, yeah, and I, leather I, and shoe polish, maybe. I, I yeah, I should put like an old leather jacket in there, and you know, uh, a map of the world, you know, when it was flat and so forth, and and get all the smells just right. Can you write there be dragons over Cambridge? Uh, why not? Uh. But anyway, so uh, I, I would just like to. So we've kind of danced around uh, the the a boy and his Adam video, but I, we could mention that I suppose it's cool. We it's once again something we don't know how it works. Um, Although there is a handy companion video which neither of us has bothered to watch. Well, is that the? Uh, so I was just mainly going to say that I'm very amused by the thing that shows up on YouTube on the sidebar. Uh, this so this was made by IBM. This this movie where they're manipulating individual atoms and then making the movie with. I guess it's, this is an electron microscope image. But uh, on the side, they've got another film by IBM that's only one minute long that's called IBM Atomic Shorts, uh, <laughs> which <laughs> I assume what they mean is short films made with atoms, but it does kind of sound like, uh, you know, radioactive underthings. I, I would... Oh, wait, sorry. The subtitle is Ripples on the Surface. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Kraus, you've got ripples on the surface of your atomic shorts again. Yeah, so I, I uh, just found the IBM page. <laughs> uh, yes, yeah, so they're using a scanning electron microscope, that's, or a scanning tunneling microscope. Oh, okay. Uh, and they can drag individual atoms across. Uh, you know, this, they sort of dumb it down here. They said they're using it like a needle to drag atoms across the surface of a piece of copper. And then they're moving, they're actually carbon monoxide molecules on top. And then if you go to uh, their... Wait, what are the atoms, though? They're just ab- atoms of... I'm, wait, I'm confused. Say again. Carbon monoxide, I guess, is stacked. So it's carbon monoxide and then o- it's just carbon and oxygen. So you're only seeing one atom, but they're like two atoms tall. Oh, okay. Oh, I see what you're saying. Okay, so it, like for some whatever interaction the carbon monoxide... Uh, molecules have with the copper, it causes them to kind of stand on end on top of the copper. I guess. Uh, and then you're looking at them from above. Yep. Oh, so those those ripples around it are actually changes yeah. in electron density. That's kind of crazy. That's cool. It, am I imagining it, or does it look like there's? Uh, I mean, I would I would have thought they would be kind of spherical, but they almost look hexagonal. Or is that just my imagination? I'm zoomed way in, and they look pretty hex. They look pretty spherical. They're on a. They're in a hexagonal shape. Okay, it, it looked like there were some lines to them, but I could be imagining. Although, I guess it's just from the packing where they make like the boy's head. I mean, that's definitely on a hexagonal lattice. I was looking at the patterns around and the individual one on the like title screen, but let's see. I swear there's some non-sphericality to it, but anyway, or maybe it's an octagon, but I could also be making it up. I'm trying to think. Could it be? Well, I was trying to think if it had to do with you know the, the fact angle? that they're like, 
Well, I was thinking the, you know, the like eight, I mean, the, the electrons occupy positions where it, uh, where the radius, or sorry, where the circumference like divides evenly into their, into their wavelength, right? Yeah, in the shells. Yeah. So going to be some, well, then again, I don't know. I mean, I don't know enough about how the microscope works to know if it, that could be, you have something to do with that, but, um, which I'm assuming, do you know, do you much about scanning tunneling microscopes? Not at all. We can talk about that next all time. Right. This would be another thing to ask one of our friends who uses, uh, I mean, cause I've never, I, I should just look it up cause I'm sure Wikipedia would be enough to tell me. It's never really made sense to me why you can get better images from a from an electron microscope than a light microscope, given that light is smaller than electrons. But I'm sure there's some dumb reason that I'm not thinking about. Oh, wavelength. Oh, I guess the wavelength. You're you're limited by the wavelength of the uh, of light, right? Uh, right. So light has a wavelength of I don't know, depending on what color, 500, 500, 500 nanometers. Yeah. So that means you can only see things that are half a micron across. Well, is it just that we can only generate? I mean, we can generate light of any wavelength, right? Yeah, I guess you could use an X-ray or something, but that might have other problems. Well, that, that's what I don't know. As I, you know, or maybe it's, or do you just have to make the photons? Or they become so high energy that they um, impact, you know, what they're hitting too much. Well, high energy photon is is just like an X-ray, right? Yeah, an X-ray or a gamma ray or whatever, right? But um, yeah, but I don't see why you couldn't have a gamma ray microscope. I think imaging living things with well, you can't do living things with an EM either. Yeah, so I mean, again, I'm sure there's a good reason for this, but that, uh, that we just haven't, we don't know. We'll cut out all the podcast, all the parts of the podcast that make us sound like we don't know what we're talking about, right? Sure. Uh, we're actually having like a microscope fair in the room where I normally eat lunch, so I will ask them about this. Okay. And then I'll ask them if they can move all their crap out of the way so I can eat lunch. <laughs> we, are, we are smart enough and educated enough to um, understand the explanation when it's given to us, but I've never bothered to look oh, up. Oh, okay. Um, I can give you a quick explanation right now. So the original TEMs, the transmission ones, basically do exactly yeah. what you said. So they have a high-voltage electron beam, I guess just because... You're looking at the same Wikipedia article I'm looking at, aren't you? Yeah. Okay, but you're about a paragraph fast ahead of me, so go ahead. Okay, so, so it does exactly what you, you suggested, except they're using electrons. Maybe because they're easier to generate, right? You're just using a cathode. I mean, it is easy to make electrons. Yeah, I'm just... Um, so people don't really do TEM too much. Yeah, I mean, I always hear about scanning electron microscopes more than almost anything else, or scanning... T uh, which I don't know what the difference is between a, that and a scanning tunneling microscope. Hope our, hope our obvious Googling is not too loud on the podcast. Oh, I just... I've been trying to type super quietly. Ah. Uh, uh, oh, it's based on quantum tunneling, actually. What? Oh, okay, so a scanning tunneling microscope is actually totally different than an electron microscope. All right, then maybe we got to talk about microscopes on a future episode, because they, they look cool. Okay. Maybe we should just... Yeah, we'll plan, this, we'll plan episode number two out better. By the way, have you ever noticed this? I never realized this before. You, you know, this is a random science fact that we can end on. Um, and I guess it just never occurred to me until it was explained. You know, your, your iPhone or your iPad or whatever uses a capacitive touchscreen, right? Yep. Um, which basically means that there's, you know, for the uninitiated, there's a charge basically behind the screen or behind the glass, right? 
and when you put your finger up to it, uh, what's a good way to describe? Well, you're better. You are better at electrical engineering stuff than me. What's a good way to describe? Uh, so, I mean, basically, your the the opposite charge to whatever is behind the glass gathers on your finger, right? Yeah, that's a good way to put it. So, in other words, what it's doing is it's basically, and then as you as you bring your finger closer to this to the screen, you're bringing you know the charge in your finger closer to the screen and the, and the screen can detect that basically, right? Uh, yeah, basically you're, you're a conductor, it's a conductor, and then you can see the change in capacitance. Right, but the weird thing is you don't have to actually touch the screen for that to work, right? So the screen that you're touching is just glass. It doesn't have any sensor. Like the glass you're touching is not detecting you touching. The capacitive touch screen is detecting when your finger is, basically when the, when the charge on your finger is uh, is high enough that it, it it is about the what you would measure from a finger as far away as the surface of the glass, right? You see what I'm saying? So it doesn't matter that you're touching the glass. It matters that you're like if the glass weren't there, but you could hold your finger very still where the glass used to be, the capacitive touchscreen would still work. Oh yeah, 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 for sure. Yes, right. So have you ever noticed that? Like I, I since I've learned that, I've actually noticed that a few times with like my iPad that uh, if I go to tap, sometimes I don't quite tap, or at least not enough to sense it with my finger, like I just miss it by a little bit, but it still works. Have you ever actually observed that happening in real life? No, although I have played a ton of uh, that stupid game you got me hooked on. Which 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 one? Is that Temple Run? Yes, I hate you. <laughs> um, I couldn't remember if I had suggested that one to you. Uh, but um, yeah, it, it's weird. Like once you know that that's, once you're attuned to that, like every once in a while you'll notice that like, you know, you go to tap and the, it's the sort of, you know, usually you, you aren't that precisely in control of your motor action. So like you actually hit the screen, right? But every once in a while, you know, one out of 50 or 100 times, you like jerk your hand away too soon, right? So you actually stop like a millimeter short. But some of those times you will still create a tap even when you don't feel it because you got your finger close enough to the screen that the screen thought it was a tap even though you did not actually come in physical contact with the surface. Whoa. Um, do you know where the original touchscreen is from? Bringing this no. all back around. It was in the control room of CERN. The, the very first like actual touchscreen? Uh-huh. That's cool. Uh, was there a particular reason they needed a touchscreen, or they just thought it was cool? Sounds like they thought it was cool. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that would <laughs> make sense to me. We have all this gear? The people in Star Trek keep touching the screen, so I guess we should, we should also do that. Um, all right, well, that's... that's uh, uh, that's enough rampant speculation about science for uh, this episode, I guess, right? Yes. Um, so we didn't have a rant or anything, but we can do that in a future episode. Yeah, we've ranted about a few things. Yeah, we, we have many rants. All right, well, I've got, uh, yeah, because we've got about an hour and 25 minutes of uh, audio, which means we probably have about, you know, eight minutes of good stuff. Um, so shall we say goodbye to the people? We shall. Uh, see you next time. All right, thanks for listening to the... Uh, we're calling the, are we calling it the Super Science Happy Hour? Yes. With Matt and Matt? With Matt and Matt. All right. Uh, so, goodbye, people. Adios. Whoa, you turned into a robot right at the creepiest part of that sentence. <laughs> Wait, what's that? Oh, you know what? This is, this is what balls. Uh, I still sound like a robot, don't I? 
No, it's uh, you're back to normal. Oh, uh, really? Because you're still breaking up a bit. Is oh, you're breaking up talking? now. Okay, well, maybe uh, I, I sound okay again. How about you? Yeah, you're back to normal. Okay, good. Um, they, they said this, uh, I don't know if you ever watched this week on tech or any of those shows, but uh, they refer to that as Cyloning, and apparently if you're on a Skype call for about an hour, oftentimes you start Cyloning um, at right about the one hour mark, but I, it seems to have gone away, so maybe it's just I think a it's just a, it's just a vocoder. I think it's just the, yeah. you run out of, maybe this Skype has some memory leak or something. Yeah, that could be, I mean, I think it's usually video for them, which is the bigger issue, but I've heard them remark many times that like, for some reason, right around the one hour mark, you get some Cyloning. <clears throat> but I think if you just, like, I think it does resolve itself. Uh, but it's, we are at the one hour and four minutes mark right now, so that would have been about right. I can believe that Skype is a poorly written piece of yeah, I, I honestly have to say that I've also like several versions behind because I hear that it keeps getting worse with every version. So me too. I'm on, like, also, I'm lazy. I'm in version six point two, but I think it's up to like you know six point two point zero point one 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 seven. Whoa, that's me too. Dude, <laughs> somehow we've got friends. the same Skype version down to the uh, down to the milliskype. <laughs> I believe is the <laughs> believe is the official uh, metric for that. Wait, so is six the Skype? That's the the Desi Skype, the Senti Skype, yes, the Milli Skype. Actually, actually no, it would be a tenth of a Milli Skype, right? Well, point one 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 seven is is one thousand one hundred seventeen. You're right. So that's Desi a Milli Skypes. So that's right? a micro Skype. Well, it would be. Yeah. No, wait. No, no, no it would be like one eleven thousand one hundred seventy micro Skypes, right? Oh yeah, one 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 seven or one point one. Yeah. No, it's one point one micro Skypes. You you know. <laughs> By the way, this is totally going the podcast because I love this joke. Um, <laughs> you know, my uh, I, I think I posted this on Twitter, but maybe didn't tell you is <clears throat> I wanted to have a cover band with um, with Tim Fab Morvan and Tim Rob, whatever his name was, impersonators singing, you know, uh, "Girl, You Know It's True," and the band it would be called Senti Vanilli. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's pretty good. Um. So intro music would would occur. We can talk about <laughs> that. Should just be our intro music. Yeah, it's called I mean, the scientist. It's called the scientist. It's kind of mopey and Coldplay-ish. How about how about if we played the Glee version of the scientist, which apparently exists? Is that better or worse? Or I'm trying to find the Skype button that will allow me to strangle you. <laughs> we'll cut all this out, as Merlin Man always says. Wait, oh, that, this just looks like Lyman through a, through a weird looking glass. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, but they're eating Garfield. What? No, it's just Lyman's face. I sent you it's the wrong a link. Face. I think you sent me the wrong one. <laughs> this, is some, this is some kind of uh, weird pornography. <laughs> uh, I, think, I think you might have sent me what was on your clipboard before. Zing. That's not true. <laughs> 